You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Danieli Prachita, who is using Django and Python to build a cloud management platform for web applications. Danieli, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. It's uh, nice to join you. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about this platform? Sure. Um, I'm Daniel, as Nick said. I work at uh, DVO. Um, we are a, a Swiss-Swedish company, and I am the chief collaboration officer of DVO, which means that my work is mostly concerned with how we work with other people, such as our customers and partners, and also how we work internally in the company. Our product is a platform which we have built with Django for cloud hosting using um, multiple vendors such as AWS, uh, Microsoft, Azure, and so on. Okay, so is this one of these things where the client comes with their provider and you just wrap around that almost? Almost like sort of kind of like a Heroku, but possibly a little bit more low level? Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes we have customers who already have their own, for example, uh, resources on a cloud vendor such as AWS. But more often, they simply want to launch a web application and they can do that through our platform. And once they're on our platform, they can choose which cloud vendor to use. So we present uh, a single common unified interface for all of these different vendors, and uh, the user will choose resources such as RAM, what kind of database they want to use, um, how much traffic they expect to use. Our system uses Docker, so they'll choose, for example, the number of containers that uh, they want to launch for this application, and then they can launch it on one of these um, cloud vendors or on their own cloud region if they have one, or even um, on-premises if uh, they have a need for on-premise hosting. Very nice. Yeah, so I guess from their point of view, do they end up then just paying that cloud provider directly for the cost that they do? And then on top of that, you give them the platform to basically manage their apps? In most cases, the uh, the customer uh, buys the services directly from us, and that includes the services provided by the underlying cloud vendor, uh, except in those cases where they come to us with their own resources already. But th those tend to be for the uh, a much smaller number of very large customers. Most simply want to take these things off the shelf. Right. So how long has this platform been up and running for? Uh, that's a good question, because the platform existed as an internal product at Devio some years ago when DVO was still uh, a web agency and the product was built to allow us to deploy our own web applications in more efficient ways uh, than we'd found so far. But it has been a publicly available platform since 2015. Okay. Now, how long was it in development for? I mean, I would imagine maybe a couple of years before it went public. Yes, it was. And um, it's as with many of these things, it um, has been an evolutionary process. So uh, these things often start as very small scripts that grow into larger applications, and then 
before you know it, you're looking at a complete system that other people might want to use as well as yourself. Yeah, very cool. I like the idea of how, you know, you use it internally to solve your own real problems, scratching your own itch. And then it's like you turn that into some type of like SaaS app or whatever. Yes. So um, DVO was a web agency, as I said before. And then we had a transition period where we were still partly a web agency and partly running this platform. But we've divested ourselves of that uh, web business of consultancy, of development, of services, and so on. And we just provide this product. Um, and one reason is, of course, that many of our customers are also web agencies, and we don't want to be in competition with our own customers. Right. Yeah, definitely don't want that. You're not Microsoft here, right? <laughs> well, we, we, we're at a different scale from uh, Microsoft and uh, we use Microsoft as a, as a, as a vendor, um, so we can uh, use Microsoft's Azure platform for uh, deployment too. But the important thing for us is that uh, uh, we want to concentrate on the platform. So as well as not being in competition with our own customers, we don't want to be distracted from what we're doing to deliver this product. Right. So maybe now, can you go into like, what are some of the traffic details about your platform? Just so listeners have an idea of what type of scale you're running at. Okay, that, that's actually more complicated than it sounds because um, we have traffic that reaches our applications and then we have the total traffic that uh, needs to be served. And of course, we use things like uh, global content delivery networks and we distinguish between the traffic that hits our servers and the traffic that can be served from, for media, for example, from uh, AWS buckets or, or, or from Cloudflare and, and so on. But uh, we see a daily outbound traffic of something in the region of the hundreds of gigabytes. Let's say in the tens of millions of HTML requests. And that's after our CDNs and uh, uh, caches and so on have dealt with uh, requests for traffic. So I hope that gives a I hope that gives a, a reasonable idea. It's it's we and also, for example, if we have customers who are running um, our platform on their own infrastructure, then we don't see that traffic ourselves. It's not being served by our infrastructure. It's it's being uh, they're managing their infrastructure with our platform, but we're not seeing their traffic. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible amount of traffic because I would imagine your CDNs probably take maybe not the blunt of it, but a pretty decent percentage, right? Yes, and then if you consider uh, how much uh, caching networks absorb along the way as well anyway, then um, there is a lot of um, traffic to and from our, our applications. Um, and th th that's not our platform. This is all the... Uh, traffic that's being served from our clients' applications on our platform. Okay. But then your platform specifically, like how much traffic is running through that Django app? Um, well, the uh, let's talk about our control panel, which is what most people will encounter when they're encountering DVO. It's, it's the control panel um, that they would use to manage their things. Actually, the traffic from that is is rather small. It's just the actions that users need to take via the web interface to manage projects or through the the command line tools that we offer for interacting with it or the APIs, that, that tends to be rather small traffic because it's just 
issuing commands to a control panel rather than serving up the websites itself. Okay, yeah, now I'm seeing what's going on. So that's more of like what your customers would interact with. But when it comes to serving their applications, you're really just using whatever container orchestration tools to serve their traffic through their apps, whether that, you know, that could be Django, that could be Flask, that could be Node, it could be whatever. Right? Yes, um, that's exactly right. And uh, we have applications of all of those kinds of our customers' applications, Django, Flask, Node, uh, Java, PHP, and, and others. But you mentioned Django first. Our platform is written in Django. And for historical reasons, at the moment, most of our clients are still Python Django users themselves. Nice. So what motivated you to use Django in the end? Uh, we didn't use Django in the end. We used Django in, in the very beginning. We used Django as far back as uh, 2007 or so um, when Divio released Django CMS, which is one of the uh, most popular Django content management systems. That was open sourced in 2008, I believe. And that was what we used as an agency for many of our projects. So in the first days of the DVO platform, it was actually a Django CMS platform, not even a, a Django platform. And bit by bit, we've opened it up and made it more flexible. So first it became a more general Django platform, uh, then a Python platform, and now it's very easy to run. Very easy. That's, I should never say that about computing, but it's straightforward to run anything that can be Dockerized on our platform. Nice. Yeah, so you've been using Django, I guess. Like, I'm not really a Django developer, so I don't know when it was released specifically, but that's probably around when it first became available, right? I think the actual date of the of um, uh, 1.0 was 1st of December 2006 or something like that, or 2008, yes. So it, it's been around quite a long time now, Django. Yeah, funny enough, I don't know why I remember this, but I remember a really epic video where someone recorded... Uh, DHH, he's the creator of Ruby on Rails and the creator of Django at the time. And they were sitting like side by side at a desk, just like talking about both of their frameworks. It was like a really cool discussion. Yeah. And um, those th that, that's nearly a decade and a half ago. So that's a surprising amount of time has passed very quickly. Yeah, for sure. So how many developers do you have working on this Django app? Um, we are quite a small team and very engineering focused. So nearly everybody in the company is actually involved in contributing to it in some way. Nearly, every, nearly everyone in the company makes a contribution to code or documentation or, or testing. And I would say that we have something, we have seven or eight people directly in one way or another contribute to the development of our products. Okay. And for this Django app, you know, your control panel there, is this a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into microservices or is it somewhere in between where it's like a monolith, but you're using a whole bunch of Django apps to split it up? Well, the control panel itself is mostly a Django application with a React front end, but there are many other components in the platform. So we have our control panel, which is what users see. But then, for example, for Python, we have a wheels proxy. We have local development applications, a command line tool that people will use on their own systems. Uh, we have registries. And then for each region that we have, and these are public regions, like for example, we have a North America or a Germany region and, 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 and others. 
uh, on AWS and others in Azure and so on, uh, as well as private regions for different customers. Each region will have its own load balancers, application builders, application controllers, um, applications um, managed by APIs for backups and so on. So rewinding a bit there, those CLI apps, are they written in Python too or no? Um, yes, yes. Although uh, we are actually looking at uh, revising the DVO uh, CLI tool in Node. But uh, at the moment, it's in, it's in Python. Yeah, I was waiting for you to say Go there because that seems to be a popular choice for CLI apps. Um, I don't know that much about that, but most of these choices are pragmatic ones that we make to make the maintenance of them easier. So we can be, we don't have to have strong policies or, or, or uh, ideologies about uh, what application, or sorry, what uh, stack or what language to use for something. The best tool generally turns out to be the pragmatic choice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was coming at it from like an end user's point of view. I mean, I'm not here to like pitch Go or whatever. I don't even use it personally, but I, I am a user of Go binaries and it's kind of sweet because it's just like you download the executable file and you run it and you're done. There's no virtual environments or pip installing anything. Yeah, and it's very tricky to provide development tools to users because there are just so many different environments that users have and... Um, it's very difficult to find things that we can uh, to make things bulletproof to to run there. Um, so the developer environment is actually a a very tricky question for companies providing software. Yeah, for sure. Maybe switching gears then, talking about like your registry backend. Is that also a Django app or no? Um, most nearly everything is written in Python and Django. I think we have a lot of. Um, scripts that are written in a whole variety of things that uh, are used uh, by our infrastructure team for, for different purposes. And I couldn't tell you too much about those, but again, they tend to be written in whatever seems to be the most appropriate tool for the task. Um, and our front ends are written in React. Um, so you asked about microservices and monoliths. One thing that we're looking at is actually splitting up our control panel into a front end and a back end so that the back end provides an API and the front end can be white labeled, for example, that could make it uh, an attractive proposition for some of our customers that they would use their own front end to the infrastructure. Oh yeah, that would be pretty cool. So that control panel app, is that then just right now sitting in one Git repo? Yes, it is. And um, it, it's sitting in, it's a single repository and it's actually running on our own infrastructure as an application. Right, so you're the perfect test case of your own service. We, we do, we, we, we run many parts of our infrastructure on our infrastructure. Right, yeah, I think that term is like dog fooding or something like that. I, it's an un unattractive term, but that's about right, yes. Yeah, so how big is that app, by the way? Just like roughly maybe like lines of code or Django apps? Um, well, we have something like two or three hundred thousand lines of Python code in the control panel. And if you consider all of the different applications and projects that uh, products that we maintain, then probably between 500,000 and a million lines of code in different languages 
across those. And, and we're talking about, let's say, several dozens of Git repositories. Wow. So when you get up, to, up there to that point where you're dealing with like hundreds of thousands of lines of code, do you use any automated tools to kind of help you make things consistent? We use um, a lot of the Python tools that uh, are popular, like, like Black, for example, that uh, saves a lot of work that people would otherwise have to do in, in maintaining consistency. Uh, further down the pipeline, we have GitLab's um, uh, continuous integration that uh, enables us to have a workflow that doesn't get interrupted by the need to check the most basic things. Um, and, you know, we are still a pretty small team. So I think many of the problems that companies with multiple engineering teams, we don't have that. We can have stand-up meetings where all of the engineers are present together and we're able to talk to one each one one another directly. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a very nice thing to have. I know personally, even like when I work by myself, though, man, if you want to like open up the can of worms on like bike shedding activities, it's things like going back to like, you know, 1500 tests that you've written and then deciding that you're just going to change like the naming convention of, of how you name those tests. Yes. Do you run into problems like that or not or situations maybe? I think that we we always, as everyone does, faces those problems that are associated with things like refactoring. And um, we've become a close-knit uh, team and have found ways to deal with them very effectively. Actually, I've had in the past many more conversations about that kind of bike shedding, uh, of that bike shedding kind than, than, than is the case now. There's a kind of maturity in our processes and our expectations that make it very easy, for example, for new people to join the team and quickly slot into the ways of doing things and not have to make their invent their own ways of, of doing things. And I was having a conversation with a colleague about this yesterday, in fact, and he said that one of the things that makes this easy is actually, in a funny way, Django itself, that Django makes refactoring a good experience. That's very nice to hear. Because usually for, you know, a lot of languages like Python and Ruby, it's not very easy to do like IDE focused refactoring, you know, like renaming a function somewhere is kind of a hard thing when you don't have like static typing and things like that. Yeah. And um, those things are always going to be a, a, a burden, but you can eliminate some of the unnecessarily unnecessary uh, problems with it. Uh, simply by having had the good fortune to have chosen something like Django that from the start encourages decoupling of uh, separation of concerns and, and decoupling of functionality. So that makes it these things much easier and, and um, allows you to make those changes which might affect lots of things, but you can have a much better sense of, of where they are and what you're affecting. Yeah, for sure. So now let's swing back to your front end and back end setup. You mentioned that you do use React on the front end, but when it comes to the back end, do you have this setup using Django REST framework, some GraphQL library, or something else? We're using uh, Django REST framework, and that hasn't always been the case. We are increasing our use of Django REST framework over um, GraphQL. Um, that's perhaps a different direction from 
many, especially since uh, GraphQL is very much the flavor of the day or the year. But the team found that uh, they were able to deal with complexity more sustainably with Django REST framework than with GraphQL. So I was a little bit surprised uh, that this was the case, but it shows that um, the shiniest tools aren't always the ones that uh, end up serving you best. Right. I think that's like a recurring theme with this episode. It's like just leaning on technology that's tried and true. Like Django REST framework has been around for so long and RESTful APIs are such a well-known problem that it just, there you go. Like that's the answer. I, I think so. I, I think the, um, the, the, the right kind of boring once again proves to be the, the thing that you want. Right, for sure. Now, going back to maybe some like other libraries that you might be using in this project, I don't know if you're going to know this off like the top of your head, but inside your requirements at TextFile, are there any libraries that kind of stand out that were interesting and really helped you build that control panel app? Well, we've mentioned um, Django uh, REST framework, and uh, there are other things in there that are pretty important. So, for example, say we're looking at testing, then we're using coverage and hypothesis. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, hypothesis, but that's an interesting testing related library. We need specific things for some of the infrastructure we work with. So we have Django storages and Boto in there. So there's a lot of great things to unwind there. So you mentioned uh, hypothesis. I've actually never heard of that one. Do you want to give us like the TLDR on that? Um, Hypothesis, it's a Python library. It um, actually originated in the Haskell uh, quick check language. And it uses what's called property-based property testing. And it works like an automated version of those um, jokes about a quality tester who walks into a bar and orders a this and a that. It tries to generate and find these edge cases that your own human written tests would never do. So it's like a kind of an uh, an automated tester that tries to generate its own tests in order to break your code. Ah, interesting. Yeah, property-based testing. I've heard that term in Elixir before, where it's like one of those things where like if you wanted to test something that uses like uh, maybe logging into a website or something like that by an email address, your property-based test could generate like 50,000 different types of like permutations of an email address, good and bad, right? Exactly so, yes. Okay, cool. Now, you also mentioned uh, that you do use Bodo, and I guess maybe this is comes down to, like, I'm not super familiar with your platform exactly, but, like, if one of your customers has a web application that requires uploading files and they happen to be using, you know, AWS, you know, S3, do you just, like, provide them some way to get access to, like, an environment variable to that S3 bucket? Like, are they on the cuff for, like, having to hook that up themselves? That's actually separate from our own use of Boto because that would be happening in their own uh, Django application rather than in ours. But in both cases, it's it's pretty much the same. That the the bucket uh, access to the bucket, its credentials are provided via an environment variable, and that environment variable is used to configure the storage backend. Um, so in the case of S3, the user, or in, in the case of our platform, our own code, will use uh, the standard Django APIs for 
handling files for saving them and retrieving them. It will tell Django which backend to use, and the actual backend will take care of that. So the the application developer doesn't need to care very much about the backend as long as they're speaking correctly to the Django API. Everything below that level will write or the files to the right place or read them from the right place. Cool. So we know we're using you know Django on the backend for for the application itself, but like you know which databases are you using? Do you use Docker in development, like stuff like that? Yes, uh, we we use um, Docker. So our application is a Dockerized deployment platform, and much of our uh, platform is itself deployed in Docker on our uh, on our platform, as, as I mentioned. Redis as well for uh, certain. Uh, storage uh, across our platform. Okay. As for other things you might be using Redis for or with, do you happen to use Celery too? Yes, Celery is in there. It's uh, one of those most venerable Django products that's practically a framework in itself that's mature, reliable, well-supported, and uh, finds a lot of different uses. And yes, we are using Celery um, in the stack too. For example, we have a a backup system. We have a lot of processes that are long running. We have a lot of processes that need to take place periodically, um, uh, and Celery uh, fits in nicely. It, it's a it's a, a Swiss Army knife for all kinds of processes and activities that you can't handle necessarily in the scope of a a, 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 a particular request. Yeah, Celery is one of those crazy tools where it's like, if you've never heard about it before and never used it before, but then suddenly you start using it, it's like, it's like almost like Redis, where yeah, Swiss Army Knife is a perfect way to describe it. Like it can do everything from executing emails in the background to like rate limiting certain API endpoints. Like it's it's pretty awesome. Yes, exactly. So uh, it, it finds uses throughout the infrastructure, uh, within systems and between them as as well. Databases, our prefer, our database of choice is Postgres, so we use that. Uh, we use, um, but then for our users, they can use pretty much whatever database uh, they want to use. So um, mostly it's Postgres because uh, most of our users still are from the Python Django world, and that's the database of choice. But we have users using uh, MySQL or um, uh, MongoDB and others. Okay, so on the database side, at the platform level, you sort of kind of do what AWS might do with something like RDS. Then you just offer your clients like a managed database. They don't need to think about it. You just give them a connection URL. No, we don't even give them that. Oh, I mean, we do give them a connection URL, but that's actually what the difference is between. You asked me about Heroku earlier on and um, how we might be different. So when you create a project on our platform, what we want to do is give you a project in which you can do your application development work. The idea is that the people using or the companies rather using our platform have a product or an application that they want to build. And they generally don't want to be concerned with configuration, with copying and pasting of uh, URLs and so on. When a project is launched, it's provisioned with multiple environments on the cloud for 
testing or and live or testing or production, whatever you want to call them. And each one of those will be provisioned with a connection to whatever database, uh, whether it's on their private uh, Postgres or on our shared Postgres cluster or MySQL or, or whatever it is. Same thing for their media storage. It might be AWS S3 or Microsoft Azure blob storage. And each project, or sorry, each environment of a project will be ready configured so that the uh, connection to those services, media or database, is already set up. And the application developer doesn't have to care about that at all. They can see it. They could even, if they wanted to go ahead and change those URLs by changing a setting or an environment variable to override them. But we provide the glue that allows the application, let's say a Django application, to take the environment variable for the uh, database and connect up the database appropriately. Or if it's the media storage, then in Django, we just use Django's um, standard abstraction layer for file storage and uh, any file actions will use that in the in the in whichever environment using the appropriate file storage, even even locally. So locally, of course, nobody's got S3 storage on their on, on their computer on their own computers or or a Postgres cluster. So we can emulate those. We when we the development tools will set up a Postgres database in another Docker container and connect to it in just the same way that it would connect on the cloud, or we'll use local file storage on the computer, uh, on the development computer instead of S3. So they get the same experience when they're developing the application as they will have when they put the application on the cloud for testing or deployment. Ah, interesting, yeah. So you're, you're uncovering new features of the platform that I wasn't even aware about. It sort of almost kinda sounds like maybe you provide people like a skeleton, like a base application project and they just use that as like the basis of what they would build their you know custom business logic on like I, for me as the end user i don't need to worry very much about like creating a docker file and a docker compose file and that stuff exactly so so um let's say you create a, a django project it will uh, spawn a, a a freshly minted django project that looks pretty familiar but it will have some additional components in that do this wiring for you. Now, th that's completely optional. You don't have to use that wiring. You can have your own functions to read um, uh, an environment variable to connect to the database. But if you don't have to do that, then it's much quicker if you don't want to do it. Okay. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Just get started and, and get developing straight away. Uh, and I like that because personally, as a, uh, a web developer, um, I've never very really been very good at setting up things like servers. I've always done it wrong, and I always spend an awful lot of time copying and pasting configuration into the wrong places and misreading variables. And it's I find that I'm not very good at that. And even if I'm good at it, if I even for somebody who's good at it, it's not very interesting to configure S3 storage. So. There are more creative things that human beings like doing than that. And um, that's one of the things that we make possible is for human beings to do things that human beings 
are good at and like doing and we take care of a lot of the this kind of error prone or boring repetitive things that even devops don't like doing right so you're telling me you don't actually like to go in and fiddle with your s3 policies and stuff like that come on that's like a good way to spend an evening i think <laughs> well uh, an evening is like a, a a good way to waste a weekend and then discover that you know you were doing the wrong thing all along so even for the people who do that efficiently because they really know what they're doing when they're doing it. It's not the most rewarding of tasks to have to do. And I think one of the reasons that Django itself was very successful is that it meant people didn't have to do a lot of this kind of boilerplate things that you would have to do every single time you wanted to start a, pro a project. It, the, the, the things that were solved problems were all were just given to you and you could just use them if you want if you like the way Django does them or if you really must you can find a way to reinvent them yourself but generally speaking most people using Django actually like Django because it gives you those solved problems and and lets you think about problems that haven't been solved yet and that's what we're trying to do with um the platform as well right so it's like batteries included but you have the option to bring your own stuff if you want Absolutely, I, I wish I'd said that batteries included because that's always that is the right uh, that is the right term. In our case, it's, it's it's like wiring included or plumbing included that you can start up the engine straight away without spending a lot of time doing all the wiring to get it going. Right now, speaking of wiring and plumbing, let's go back to your tech stack a bit. And you mentioned how you know Postgres is kind of your main choice if you're you know going to be using a database, and you have Redis there. Do you use any other tools like Nginx or HAProxy? Like, what do you do for your load balancing? Let's see. So our load balancer is a custom load balancer of uh, our own. Inside users' projects, um, our Python and Django projects will use MicroWSGI. We can also use Nginx at the project level, um, or they can use whatever kind of gateway they need to communicate with our uh, external facing load balancers. Okay. And when you set someone up with Nginx or any one of those other tools, do you also give them like SSL certs without them having to worry about that? Uh, yes. And any domain that's um, configured for our platform will be issued automatically with uh, free, uh, free certificates uh, via Let's Encrypt, which is a really nice thing to have. And it just actually makes for a better internet that everybody gets uh, has access to these free certificates. It's not like it was a few years ago when uh, setting up a certificate was a much more complex and difficult business. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, do they need to have their DNS records hosted with you because you do the DNS-based validation? Let's encrypt or no? Um, no, they, they, we don't host DNS. They just have to tell our platform that um, we're going to serve from such and such a domain and then as long as our control panel can check the domain is doing what it's supposed to be doing we can set up the certificate for it okay so i guess like low-level details maybe you're using like the web validation mechanism of let's encrypt where it writes that one token to a file and then you just check to make sure it's there i have to be honest i don't know exactly how that works and I'm sorry if I keep saying I don't know, but in a way, I'm also really glad that I can say I don't know, because it means that 
it's a problem that I don't have to care about. <laughs> when, if, when I launch a new, uh, if I build an application of my own and launch it on the platform, I don't care how it gets done. All I know is that I put in the domain and 15 minutes later or five minutes later, my uh, certificate has been set up just like my S3 storage or my Postgres database. And those are the things that used to take me so much time when I was looking after a server of my own. Yeah, for sure. Now, actually, and no, go ahead. But I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I, I shouldn't. In one way, you know, you ask me these questions, and I want to be able to give you the answer. But in in much the same way that um, um, nowadays, when you get it, if you get in your car and go and go somewhere. You don't have to know or really care that much about what's happening under the engine. Maybe if that's your hobby to know about mechanics, then that's a good thing to know. But for most people, the fact that it just works and you get to do the other thing that you wanted to do without having to dive into the engine is actually uh, empowering. It allows you to think and work on different things. Yeah, for sure. But now maybe we can get into like your server setup, like the actual infrastructure that runs your platform. I guess we can start with, you know, which cloud provider do you use to host all of this on? We use different ones. So our whole deployment stack for our customers is vendor neutral. They don't have to care about the underlying uh, cloud vendors. And it's the same thing with our control panel. Um, I, don't, I don't want to say too much about exactly where uh, we're hosting the control panel and, and these components, but I've already mentioned AWS, Microsoft Azure. Oh, I didn't mention mention Google Cloud. I should mention Google Cloud. And there are other providers as well. Uh, there are providers in um, Switzerland, for example, uh, that we use. And because of the infrastructure of the platform, it's very easy for us to shift it to a different provider. So all this experience we have at making uh, users' applications vendor neutral, of course, is also applied to our own infrastructure. If, for example, let's say, for example, that we had something or a lot of things hosted on AWS and AWS went down in a certain region for a long period of time, which doesn't often happen, but has happened, or perhaps the pricing has changed so that makes it uneconomical, we can shift our own infrastructure to uh, another cloud vendor very, very fast, just as we can for uh, our own customers. We have a, uh, we can provide cloud shift so that if, if uh, we've got a, a large multinational company with all their websites and applications in production un hosted with DVO and underlying uh, hosted on AWS, if for whatever reason, that um, needed to change, it could be shifted in literally in minutes to a completely different provider in a different part of the world, pretty much without dropping a beat and without having to change any code in the application. It could all be handled because we provide this abstraction layer that allows us to be a vendor neutral platform. Okay, but for the infrastructure powering your platform itself, do you use then like your own homegrown tooling then to set these servers up? Because it sounds like you probably aren't using something like a managed Kubernetes in AWS because then you couldn't really transfer that to Google Cloud without a lot of work, right? 
Um, actually, we are using, um, as you say, homegrown orchestration in the um, in the control panel for uh, our customers' projects and for the control panel itself. Um, but we are actually looking at ways of using uh, tools like Kubernetes where they're appropriate for us to use. Okay. Would you mind going into some detail about your homegrown setup? Not so much like implementation details, but like, you know, what type of servers are you running here? And, you know, is it using something like, I don't even know, right? Like, I mean, there's Docker Swarm as a, an alternative to Kubernetes and there's like, what is that, Mesos or something like that? Like, did you just like come up with your own total container orchestration system on your own? Yes, pretty much. And that was um, built in the very early days of, of the system so we're talking um if it went public in 2015 so 18 even 24 months before that uh we were looking at ways of managing this containerized infrastructure so that a project could be defined and then launched uh automatically for to be put into uh, production or deployed for test purposes. So that has grown up over quite a long time. It's very mature now and um, is also flexible enough that it allows us to work with these multiple different uh, vendor uh, cloud, with these multiple different cloud providers. Okay, so at the end of the day, then you're just loading up the lowest level like VPS to your server, those providers have like an EC2 instance, and then you do whatever magic you need to do to get that up and running into your own cluster? Yeah, I can't give you too many details about exactly how that, that's happening. And also it, it does depend on, on the vendor uh, and, the, and the infrastructure. So for example, we have one customer that's a, I have to be careful what I say. <laughs> we have one customer that's a government uh, um a, low, um, a regional government that has a very large infrastructure of their own managed via our infrastructure. And that actually works in quite a different way from most of the cloud vendors uh, like uh, Microsoft Azure or AWS. But we can still provide many of the same interfaces to it because we can we have abstraction layers so that uh, the users who are managing it are somewhat isolated from needing to dig into the underlying machinery. Okay. Now that machinery, can you go into like a tiny bit of detail here? Like, like which base operating system do you use? That's something I can't really talk about. There's first of all, there are many different, uh, we have dozens and dozens of, we can't even call them servers, but we can call them, uh, applications running in, in in Docker. And we will use whatever is the most appropriate thing. So sometimes the base image in, uh, in Docker will be a very minimal one. Sometimes it will be a more fully featured one. But um, as for the actual stack within there, it's, it's, it's Linux. It's variations of, of, of Linux. It's mostly uh, Debian-based or uh, Debian-inspired Linuxes. Uh, that's pretty much all I can say about that, I'm afraid. Okay, well, that's good enough to know that at least Debian is powering most of that, or at least a decent portion of that. 
Debian or Debian inspired uh, Linuxes, which actually now account for such a lot of them. Right. You basically just said like one in like 500 different ones. <laughs> but I guess like Ubuntu is the main, you know, based on Debian distro. Yes. Yeah. Okay. As for the servers, though, I know you're not going to be able to give me exact numbers and I'm not going to ask you crazy things like, you know, how much your hosting costs. But I mean, what type of like scope are we at here? Like, do you have thousands of these servers in a container uh, container orchestration tool that you have or no? In the low hundreds. Okay. But that's interesting when you see a number like that, though, right? Because there's a huge difference between, you know, just for argument's sake here, like a T2 micro instance with one gig of RAM and one CPU core versus some crazy instance with like, you know, 64 CPU cores and like 192 gigs of RAM. Well, that's interesting because um, you were asked at the beginning of the conversation, you were asking about microservices and how things were distributed. And it, it's not really microservices, but for example, let's say we have a region, let's say our AWS Germany region, that will have its own load balancers and it will have multiple load balancers. Um, but every load balancer is essentially the same load balancer. It's just a different instance of it, even across the different regions. They're the same. It's the same code. It's the same application. The All the registries will be pretty similar. The um, application controllers, the application builders, we might have multiple instances of these on multiple regions, but they're just instances of the same thing in many cases. So I, uh, I think I've mentioned that we have a few dozen um, Git repositories. We don't have hundreds of Git repositories. Our code bases, we want to keep those as compact and repro uh, reproducible and reusable as possible. We want to have multiple instances for redundancy. We definitely don't want to be finding ourselves in the situation where we have a huge sprawl of code, either within monolithic applications or across multiple uh, code bases that uh, such a small team has to deal with, because that would not be feasible. So when it comes to all the servers that you've created, do you use any type of configuration management tools like Ansible, or did you roll your own setup? Quite a few things need to be uh, custom built for our own purposes. But we also, you, you mentioned Ansible. Yes, uh, we use Ansible. Uh, we uh, use Helm with our uh, development in Kubernetes. We use uh, Terraform increasingly too. And they used again in for a variety of different things. Why we use one tool over another, um, a tool like Ansible, n nobody gets really excited about Ansible anymore, but it's the right kind of boring, it's well-supported, it's mature, it's likely to be around in a very long time. And that's typically the basis on which we choose tools like these. Right. Well, I've agreed with everything you said so far, but I still get excited from Ansible. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting in, in um, the things that it saves you from having to do. But it's not exciting in the sense that it's something that's new on the scene that nobody has heard of before. Exactly. I know what you mean. Like, it, it's the hype cycle. Like, it's beyond its point of, like, everyone is going crazy over it. it now it's just, like, the tool that you use for that type of job. I think those are my favorite tools. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, you did also mention that you are using Terraform. Do you want to go into a little bit of detail on like what type of resources you're creating with that? As we expand the vendors and different underlying infrastructures that we work with, we need to work in lots of different ways with them. Um, having started with a much narrower set of tools um, and often with ways of working that are hard-coded into our infrastructure, we need more abstraction layers and Terraform is uh, going to be part of that in the future. Nice. Yeah, Terraform is one of those tools, again, it's like if you've never heard about it before and you start using it, you're like, how did I even survive without this? It's like, yeah, infrastructure as code is like the most amazing concept. Yes, and we find that this is something that increasingly appears in customers' requests uh, when they are talking about their own infrastructure. So the need for customers to be able to manage infrastructure through configuration that they can maintain in Git rather than through scripts and processes is is growing. Right, yeah, because those scripts and you know, manually clicking around in web UIs, like it's just so easy to forget one step and then you write docs for it, but then the docs get out of date. Like, yeah, it's a big problem. Actually, speaking of docs though, you know, your project is very, very large, right? 200,000 plus lines of code just for that control panel app. Like, how do you guys deal with documentation? Our tool of choice for documentation is restructured text and Sphinx, and we host it on read the docs, which is very common for documentation in the Python Django ecosystem. So restructured text, if you're not, are you familiar with restructured text? Yeah, RST, right? Yes, yeah. It, it's, there's more investment required than say with Markdown, but there's also much more return on that investment once the documentation grows to a certain size and this ability to do, uh, to link with document, automatically link with functions and uh, modules and, and so on from other documentation sets via Intersphinx is very powerful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the only reason I ever got into RST is because in the early days of Ansible, it only allowed you to create restructured text like readme files instead of markdown. Uh, that's been changed since then, but that's like my entry point to using that. Yeah. No, we're extremely happy with that, uh, with that combination. It's proved very successful the way that it's part of a Git repository and can be part of a code repository means that documentation and code can be versioned and kept up to date with each other in much better ways than would otherwise be the case. So on the topic of deployment now to finish things off here, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to go into the gory details about this, but like, how do you deal with deploying to such a large amount of servers? Like, you know, you probably don't just deploy to all of them at once and then there's like, you know, five seconds of downtime while they all restart. Like, do you deal with like rolling restarts across your whole cluster of containers? Yes. Um, sometimes things need to be redeployed in parallel. Um, for example, when we have redundant, instance, redundant instances that have had a configuration change applied. Um, most of the tooling for this is entirely custom built because it's for very custom purposes. 
But one principle that maybe uh, is interesting is that we always try to avoid changes to existing servers or services. Uh, so um, to aim for immutable infrastructures where if something needs to be changed, it will be uh, a new instance will be provisioned, launched, sanity tested uh, before the old one is killed off and put away. Okay. So I guess like, I don't know, implementation details, if you can go into this one, but the idea there is like you bring up the new instance, put it into the load balancer, make sure it's healthy, and then take the old one out. Um, that would be a good example for uh, our app controllers, for example, that uh, a new app controller, um, suppose that we, dis we or the system uh, decides that there's a problem with an app controller, a new instance will be spun up. Uh, it will be checked. For, uh, there'll be health checks. And then it will take the place of the one that was running. And then the one that was running can be um, put away. But the, the tooling to do that is, in almost all of those those cases, entirely custom tooling. That's pretty much all able, I'm able to say about that, Nick. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's no problem. I, I totally understand because when it comes to the, you know, the super gory details about this stuff, like it's almost a custom setup with every organization. Like there is no tool to do that in like a perfect way. That's right. Yeah. Right. Now I have a follow-up question now about like your deployment process. And I hope we're going to be able to answer this one because it does involve a little bit of like low level details. Maybe do you want to give us like a walkthrough of what it's like to deploy code in your organization? Like, let's say you want to, I don't know, add a new feature to that uh, control panel, right? hack away on the project locally? Like, what's the step-by-step -step to get that up and running in production? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. First of all, whatever the feature is, has to go through the processes for inclusion even before anybody starts coding anything. Because one thing you probably know about engineers is that they are full of great ideas and it's not feasible for everybody to have great ideas all the time. So once there's a case for a feature to be uh, rolled into the control panel, uh, it's uh, pretty straightforward actually to set up the whole control panel on a MacBook because it is itself running in Docker. So we can uh, set it up and, and deploy it locally just in the way, same way we would any other application. And then the code base is, is there. It's a Python Django application. And it's then a case of, as you say, hacking on it um, as anyone would. We have a complete development infrastructure that mirrors our production infrastructure. It's in effect a whole development region and it contains everything that the real regions have, including its own development control panel. And that can be pushed to our uh, development control panel. It can be tested there. Um, we have a, of course, a testing and QA process. We have uh, a continuous integration process. We've got a lot of testing around all of this tooling. Um, so it, we can run things in local environments. And, and that actually is uh, one of the things that speeds up our work a lot is, is being able to uh, run production code in a local environment and get a very good idea of how it's going to behave. Okay, and just for clarity there, like when it comes to those development databases, are they actually just running in like a local, like let's say the app is configured to use Postgres, is it gonna spin up like a Postgres container locally or does it connect to that dev environment that's like on the cloud somewhere? 
Um, normally for local development, we would just set up a Postgres database in a container. Okay. You also mentioned CI services there. Uh, do you know what service you're using and how you use it? We're using GitLab's CI/CD, and it's commits that land on in in the repository, then are uh, run through our battery of uh, tests. We have uh, many low-level unit tests. We have more integration tests uh, and um, function testing at a, at a slightly higher level. And then we also have a lot of behavior testing that our team do. There's a lot of testing that can't be done manually or sorry, that can't be done automatically. Although we're always looking for ways to automate some of that uh, behavior testing to test interactions through the control panel. Okay. And do you have GitLab CI self-hosted or do you use their managed version of it? I think that we're using their managed version of it. I don't think we are not hosting it ourselves, although we do some GitLab instance hosting, but not for that. Right, because I know they also have that combo thing where it's like you can use their managed service, but then if you want to run like the CI runners locally on your own boxes so you don't get charged for the build minutes or whatever, then uh, you have that option. Um, I can't tell you who they are, but we do something like that for for clients. Okay. Throughout that CI process, do you actually go all all in there and actually deploy your apps based on you know the test passing or whatever? Like when things get merged to a specific branch, then it gets rolled out? No. And the reason we don't do that is because... Although the control panel is a, not monolithic, but it's a, it's a fairly self-contained application, there are many other components that need to work in concert with it. And it needs a human decision to know whether multiple things need to be released at once or whether something can simply be deployed with a new commit. So we're not at the stage where a commit lands and then triggers a deployment on most things. Right. I guess that is a pretty scary thing because it's like, not only is it, you know, deploying your service, but your customers depend on that working as well. So it's like, and their customers depend on their apps to be running as well. So it's like the customers of customers effect. Yes. So um, it would first always be thoroughly tested manually on our development region long before we allow a commit to land on the uh, be deployed in production and and often in those cases there will be things that need services that need to be restarted or services that need to be reconfigured when there are code changes especially when for example we're dealing with some of the changes where we make our infrastructure work with a new cloud vendor, for example. It's not just restarting an application. It, it's all those parts that need to um, uh, be on the same page. Yeah, for sure. Now, what would you say, like, I know this is going to be different depending on, you know, what type of commits are being pushed, but like, what's the timeline look like from, you know, a developer pushing code to GitLab and then that thing actually being up and running as a feature in production? Well, that that does depend very much, but um, for simple things, it it it's it can be literally minutes if it's uh, a little bug fix or something like that. For something that changes the way uh, things work, then we have to be much more cautious about it. So, 
I'm wondering if I can. So recently, we we made the option to have to for the users to be able to configure and add additional databases so that a user can enable a MySQL database directly from the control panel rather than having to ask us to do it. That that's a, uh, that's a recent feature. Uh, it was launched some weeks ago, but it's still in beta on the control panel. So we need to get a very good sense of how it's working before we give it to just everyone. Because, as you say, these are customers' applications that could be directly affected by it. Right. Now, when it comes to those beta features, do you have something where, like, your customers can opt into that program to get those features early, like through feature flags or, like, even going as far as you know, turning that feature on just for like 1% of your traffic? No, we, we don't do that kind of A-B testing. Or a, no, I shouldn't. Yeah, I, it is, that would be testing. We don't do testing on our, on our customers. We um, have customers who know our platform very well and they have been with us a long time and uh, have, are able to give us very good feedback on things because they're often pushing the limits of things and many of them are have opted in as you say to uh, beta features we know then that uh, they'll be able to tell us that they are voluntary canaries in the in the coal mine for us um, but we're actually very conservative about about releasing features like that even about releasing them as beta features because nobody can afford to have a feature that damages their customers projects yeah for sure at that point it's like i mean the term is like yeah beta feature there but at that point it's like it's super well tested it's like you know they're the early adapters basically that's right um by the time something comes in uh, as a beta feature we will be perhaps fixing up very obscure edge case bugs in it or improving interfaces or wording or names of things rather than still experimenting with the fundamentals of how it functions. Right. Now maybe we can uh, go into things like how do you plan for disasters and like unexpected events? Like I would imagine you have a lot of data that needs to be backed up. Do you want to go over that process? Yeah. So uh, we have backups all over the place. We have um, uh, backups for our own infrastructure and of course, backups that run automatically for our customers' content. So our customers' code is in is versioned in Git. We run our own Git servers, or they can use external Git servers. Their media, their database content, those will be backed up um, automatically. Then for our own infrastructure, that also is backed up automatically. We have a great deal of redundancy across the infrastructure as well. So load balancers, application runners, application builders, all these things are running in redundant instances. We have a great deal of automation around service continuity because um, we function better when we're not woken up in the middle of the night by pagers and things. So we have a lot of services and things that will monitor themselves and restart when they need to, so they don't need to be restarted manually, for example. Okay, so maybe we can get into that a bit. Like, which services do you use for that type of thing? 
And what exactly is it monitoring, like CPU health and memory and disk and all that stuff? There are all kinds of things. We 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 monitor uh, response times from an application within an application, or or, or a, not just applications, but also uh, services. They have custom health checks depending on what they are. So, for example, the let's say the wheels proxy or the registries have their own uh, custom checks appropriate to the services themselves. We have services that check on other services and can restart them. And of course, alarms that will alert our SREs, our site reliability engineers, if something happens that needs attention, because sometimes there will be a failure that then starts to cascade safe. So we have uh, redundant Redis provision in our backend, uh, but in the past, it had happened that a Redis failure caused cascading faults. So we don't want that to happen again. So we we have ways to mitigate that. Okay. Can you get into specifics of like, what are some of these monitoring tools that you use, like the libraries? Oh, um, n- no, I, I, I can't. I can tell you that we use uh, PagerDuty for alerts, but I couldn't tell you what we're using underlying for 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 the actual tooling, um, except to say that it's numerous different things. Some of them are off the shelf, and many of them are internal tools. Okay, yeah, I was about to say, like, if you can't give specifics, is it tools that most folks would be familiar with? Like, oh. Yeah, sorry, please continue. Oh, I was going to say, like, you know, things you can Google for around monitoring and be like, okay, that's the tool. Yes, yes. many We use many open source tools. We we have uh, many familiar tools in production that other people would recognize. Okay. So on the topic of monitoring and alerts, there's also, like, things like error reporting. Do you use a, a specific service for that, or is it, like, homegrown as well? Um Like, this will be a specific app level. Like, let's say the control panel starts throwing 500s. Yep, yep. We have a tool that many of your users will also be using that we can log into, and it's uh, uh, more than one tool, so we can correlate error reports from one tool, which all the team will have access to, with uh, reports on RAM consumption on different services or applications, whether they're our own or our customers, in another, and we can we, we use all those. So. Um, Without necessarily going into uh, too much details of what we use there, I'm sure your users are used to using things like Sentry and PagerDuty and Datadog, and you can name many other services, and um, we are using similar tools or those tools as well. Okay. Well, you just ruined my joke. I was so ready to be like, well, does that error reporting tool start with the letter S? And uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of Sentry, uh, I almost forgot to talk about this because that reminds me of like maybe some other SaaS tools that you could be using. Now, when it comes to the site, you know, folks do need to sign up and pay for the service. Are you using Stripe as your payment gateway? Um, you won't be surprised to find that we're using Stripe. It's uh, it's popular. It's simple. Uh, we can hook it into our uh, processes and uh, very easily, and it's it's one of those solved problems that we we like to have. Um, we're very glad not to have to write that functionality uh, ourselves. That's for sure. 
So when it comes to the Stripe setup then and your payments, how do you bill your customers? Is it just like once a month or is it like pay as you go? Um, most customers just pay as they go once a month with a, a credit card. Larger customers will pay annually in advance or via some or other means, including um, um, the European SEPA system. Okay. Now, as for the pay-as-you-go versus like monthly, one cool thing about a lot of these different cloud providers like, you know, AWS, DigitalOcean, you know, they allow you to spin up a server for, let's say, one hour, and it might cost you like a nickel instead of having to pay for the whole month. Do you offer any type of like payment tiers like that, or is it just like per the month basis? At the moment, it's it's just per month basis, but that's a really interesting um, uh, model, this, uh, this serverless model where... Uh, maybe per request the cost is higher, but if you're only doing literally a few requests every month, then there can be a huge saving. And so while now what we're doing is launching servers inside Docker containers, it would be perfectly feasible to launch serverless infrastructures and functionality inside those same Docker containers and to provide that and we don't do it yet, but it's definitely something that we're keeping an eye on. Okay, now on the topic of billing, I know some cloud providers like AWS or DigitalOcean, instead of just paying for an entire month for, let's say, one server, they give you the option to basically pay by the hour. So if I spin up like an EC2 instance for two hours, then I'm only going to be billed for that two hours. Do you have that type of setup in your system or no? It's not what we're aiming for. But it is, in fact, possible to spin up a subscription, run it for a couple of hours, and then shut it down. But what you won't get is something that spins itself up on demand for a couple of hours only. Um, you'll have to manage that yourself. A different thing, but maybe more interesting in a way, is, is the serverless model, where you just have a function running that uh, pops into existence when it's required. And that doesn't fit too badly with the Docker server architecture. And that's something that actually that we're looking at as well. Oh, very cool. So it's like you're almost setting up your own like AWS Lambda, I guess. I can't say that we're setting it up, but it's something that we are talking about and, and looking at. Right. See that? I almost got you to give us the scoop on the Insider's uh, podcast release. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Okay. On that note, then, do you want to give us your best tips and lessons learned from building this platform? That's a really good question. And it's a really good question because the best tips themselves change over time. And we're a small team with a very big platform and communication is actually one of the keys here. So um, anything that can eliminate miscommunication is an advantage. Um, many of the advantages come not from doing things, but through avoiding things. I think actually a good example would be the choice of Django itself. Now, Django seemed to emerge on the scene fully formed, boring and mature, but it was boring and mature in all the right ways. Uh, it, it seemed to be born middle-aged. And I'm not criticizing, that's absolutely not a criticism of Django in any way. It's what has made it so attractive for us and so many other adopters. Uh, similarly, our we use React when we're doing things, uh, front-end things in JavaScript. JavaScript 
Uh, so uh, React is the right kind of boring, as one of my colleagues described it. Uh, another thing that's very valuable is that we are constantly, to use this as unattractive expression, eating our own dog food. We are running our own platform in many uh, in many ways, on our platform, we use our platform every single day. Every frustration with our platform that our users encounter is one that has already made our own blood boil long before the users are even mildly annoyed by it. So we are rarely taken by surprise by a user's annoyance because we are all, we've already got it on our radar as something to be fixed or improved. Uh, using your own Using the things that you make and using the right kind of boring things are very important pieces of advice when it comes to technology. And having team communication that works is another. Right. Yeah, that is all excellent advice. And it was kind of weird, like throughout this podcast, it almost sounds like in my mind, I was thinking like, I hope this doesn't come off like you're just pitching your platform instead of talking about actually building it but in a way it's like you know you know what i mean it's like you're using it as your own platform so specifically that you know it just comes out to be like whatever your customers do you end up doing for your own control panel we have to um it's when every company makes miss missteps and when you are providing customers with an interface and you get things wrong you hear about it very quickly it's impossible to build a successful interface, I think, if you're not going to be using it yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, Daniele, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you, Nick, for inviting me. It's been fun, and I hope uh, you've enjoyed it and other people will enjoy hearing this too. Oh, yeah. I had a great time. But before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, yes. Uh if anyone's interested in what DVO does, come and see us on DVO.com. If you want to see what it's like to fire up a Django or other project, you can uh, create a, f a developer account. We've got um, uh, free developer plans that they just run indefinitely and uh, they are fully featured. They have all the features of the plans that people are paying thousands of dollars a month for, but with fewer resources. And you can actually take your project right from development to deployment uh, on that free plan before deciding to go any further with Devio. So I would say have a look and explore and see if it's for you. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.